Welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business, presented by FL Montreal, Dan Delmar and Mike Newton with you as always. Hey, Mike. Hey, Dan. How you doing? I'm excellent. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Coming up on the show today, we're going to talk about, well, people who uh, might not be in such an excellent situation, those who have been victims of a disaster at home, could be a flood, a fire, etc. There's a new... Uh, well, not so much a new business, but an evolving business called Sinistar, and CEO Alexis Vertefeuille is with us. And they're sort of like, um, it's more complicated than this, but they're sort of like an Airbnb matchup service for those who have just been victims of disasters, along with uh, their insurance companies to help get them uh, into a safe spot real quickly. Yeah, I think the, the the big difference here is that you don't go online like you would an Airbnb and just res- reserve a vacation rental or or somewhere to stay. I mean, this is really subject to, to a disaster uh, that you have undergone, as well as bringing the insurance company into play. So the same way you would use an insurance, comp- uh, insurance company or insurance adjuster to come when you've had a car accident that would arrange for you to uh, end up with a loaner car for a week or two weeks or a month or however long it takes to fix your car. This is the same principle here where he's trying to match people. And it's gone from really a kind of a, a a homey kind of I'm just going to help a couple of people into what is uh, developing into quite an interesting model and uh, uh, certainly a very portable model outside of uh, of, the, of his home uh, location. Yeah, it makes you wonder why it hasn't been thought of before, um, you know, just having uh, people in your neighborhood even. That's how it started. Alexi's going to explain this. Uh, he was setting up someone in his neighborhood with someone with uh, free free accommodation. So uh, it's it's a really interesting model and based on on people power. Yeah, and it's interesting. It kind of reminds me of the old out of the out of the city co-op type arrangement where, you know, the whole goal here is to try and help people within the community. And that's how it started. It didn't start as a an ongoing business idea, but it really started about, hey, how can I help people who have had problems find a place to live or, you know, interim places to live? And, and, and I think it's developed. So it's 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 a very interesting model. Our expert later in the show will be Julie Cote, manager of real estate tax at FL because there's a new federal tax coming on uh, vacant properties, and she's going to talk about that uh, 1% tax on uh, on those extra vacant properties. If you have a condo vacation home in Whistler, for example, you might want to tune into that. So that is on the way. But first, thought leadership, some news and notes, and this um, from Brené Brown, very popular motivational speaker these days. It's all about the great resignation and something like, I mean, we're in what, 30, 40 million P- Americans, I think, have, have changed jobs over the pandemic, Mike. And a lot of people, according to at least one study, a controversial study, out of the MIT Sloan Management Review, claims that it's toxic work culture uh, that has been driving the great resignation. Kind of an interesting thesis there, Mike. What do you think? Yeah, it very much is. I mean, we, we've talked about the great resignation many times on this show. And, you know, if you if you look at some of the stats between April and September of 2021, so, you know, not even talking six months, more than 24 million Americans left their jobs, not got fired, not were relocated, not, you know, were furloughed, but actually left their jobs. And, you know, people have been trying to understand, as, as especially as we start to come out of the, 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 the lockdown model and getting people back to work, what is it that was driving people to, to move away from their employment? And this article really deals with, I mean, it, it, it's a piece that was done on a Brené Brown uh, podcast that makes reference to this MIT Sloan uh, management review article, which basically looks at defining toxic culture and the implications of a toxic culture in the workplace. And, you know, part of this, the interesting study for all of the people that they had uh, uh, gathered information from was the fact that there was very little overlap in what actually constitutes toxic toxic culture. And for many people, it's very different in, in different places. 
Um, but I think that, you know, you have to first define what is toxic culture and toxic culture is not a, Hey, it's a really annoying workplace. I don't like my neighbor or, you know, this is less than optimal to what I want to be doing with the rest of my life. But this is really about toxicity. This is really about a negative space that, you know, is, 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 is mentally and, and physically, uh, draining on you. So what they tried to do was to look at the top five and, and the top five, uh, toxicity, you know, if you want to call it the toxicity index, um, the first really is is non-inclusiveness. And, you know, we all know that this is a huge issue, um, certainly within the North American media, but, it, 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 you know, worldwide. And this is not being included or treated fairly based on who you are, whether that's gender, whether that's sex, whether that's color, whether that's religion, whatever that may be. Um, the second is being disrespected or disrespectful environments. Uh, the third is working in an environment that is dishonest, unethical, or carries, you know, low integrity behaviors from, from management or tolerates low integrity behavior from its employees. People just do not want to be associated with negativity. I think a lot of that comes, I mean, the first three, you can certainly say come from that uh, anywhere from the whistleblowing to the, to the, um, uh, you know, the environments of me too, that have, that continue to evolve into, into our workspace. Um, the fourth, interestingly enough, is cutthroat and not necessarily the way, you know, you think of uh, cutthroat, um, uh, um, you know, uh, em employment environments where I have to do better than you. At all, you know, this is about at all costs. This is about taking people down in order for you to win. It's undermining your, undermining your, 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 your neighbor. It's undermining people you work with. Uh, and, and I, and I think that this is obviously a very negative and then obviously people that have abusive managers. So there's an environment here that is just, <laughs> we've said this before, you know, two people in the same location doing this job with two different managers and one it's the greatest thing and the other can't get out of there enough. Yeah, I mean, just from personal experience, I, I do think this is an issue. And I think people, especially millennial workers, have a really, really short tolerance for abusive managers. And I would say that uh, I'm thinking of two, like a couple of our recruits over the pandemic came to us because they knew we were remote, flexible and not crazy for better, lack of a better word, and that we were a positive uh, environment that would sort of be very flexible and tolerant with them. And and we did hear some horror stories from people who uh, who did um, who had bosses who uh, wanted to who just put too much pressure on them in the context of the pandemic, and that's why we snapped them up. So yeah, treat your employees I think the way that you would want to be treated, and increasing the pressure over the pandemic on them makes no sense. No, and it, it's very interesting because I think you can really delve into generational differences here in terms of what, you know, the acceptance level is. I mean, certainly anybody who's, you know, probably falls into a baby boomer category or into a, you know, a Gen X category. Toxicity is not the same definition as it would be for a millennial or a, or a, or a Gen Z. And, and I think the as much as people don't necessarily know what to do with it, I think the recognition that there is a difference is 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 a major area here and i mean the, you know the uh, the old pat on the back or the pat in the butt as you walked by was uh, you know part of uh, like the football locker room uh, do that today you might as well just walk out the front door and go right to uh, your lawyer so you know it's an environment where not only is it you don't need to understand it. I think you need to recognize it. And, and I think that's a key uh, element here. Uh, you're not going to get somebody who's got five years to retirement to necessarily understand the differences, but you do need to get them to understand the implications and to not behave that way. This is from Harvard Business Review. To win over an audience, uh, leaders should focus on building trust. And uh, they offer five key C words here, clarity, compassion, competency, connection, and consistency. 
Yeah, you know, it's very interesting that, you know, eight out of 10 people would say that, uh, you know, they will not follow a leader that they do not trust. So, you know, if I take it back to the article we were just talking about, I mean, there's a similarity in this as well. But, you know, people are not going to just follow a leader because their business card says I'm your boss or because somebody's told them they're your boss or even worse, I told you I'm your boss. I mean, the reality in this environment is when you're speaking to people and whether that's three people on your team or 500 people in an audience and in an auditorium, uh, you know, the, the key way to get the message across, first of all, is clarity from a leadership perspective. You know, it's hard to trust somebody that doesn't know what they're talking about. Okay? You, you need to be clear. You, the message needs to be clear. I might not like the message, but at least as long as the message is clear, I understand what's going on. Okay. And that, you know, trust is benefit. It's huge. I mean, walk into a shoe store and, you know, the, you, you don't usually trust your, uh, your salesperson. So your reaction time or your involvement time or what you're going to purchase is very different than when you walk into your employer. If you don't want to trust them, it's a very, very difficult way to, to address things. The second one is compassion. And, and I think that this is, a, this is a very, very difficult one. It falls into emotional intelligence. It falls into empathy, compassion, understanding. I think you get it or you don't get it. Uh, there's not a lot of leeway in between the maybe I got what this looks like because uh, it's really obvious if you don't understand that compassion side. And it really is about talking about what we did together as opposed to me saying, I did this for you. Uh, from a competency perspective, I go back to it. I mean, you know what? If you don't know what you're talking about, you lose your audience, you lose your people, you lose any kind of trust. You know, there's nothing worse than watching a, a manager or a boss come in and literally read from uh, something that has been uh, that they have to force down the throats of everybody else who doesn't get it. You don't trust it. You don't trust the message. Uh, and you know what? To me, there's 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 two other elements, and and the connection side of things is how do you connect with the people you're talking to? Again, three people, three hundred people. How do you connect? How do you draw them in? Do you use stories? Are you making them feel like they're part of the conversation? And the last one is consistency. You know what? Walk the walk and talk the talk. Uh, don't stand up in front of everybody and tell them that uh, you live for ethical behavior and then uh, are less than ethical in your business practices. All right. Pretty good advice. Thank you, Mike. And let's talk to our entrepreneur next. He is Alexi Vertfeuille, CEO of the After Disaster Accommodation Network, CineStar. So basically, they connect victims of disasters with temporary accommodations around their neighborhood. Alexi Vertfeuille is with us. Alexi, welcome to today's entrepreneur. Thank you. Thank you. So, Alexi, our first question, quite simply, is what is CineStar? CineStar is an online marketplace that uh, make a bridge between insurance company and people who want to rent out to disaster victim. So uh, the company just is a fintech company who automated all the process that you have between like, I want to rent my house to an insurance company to I have a disaster to I need a house for <laughs> um, uh, be relocated. Uh, and after all the coordination between like my the insurance company, the host and the disaster victim. So this is a Sinistar. So that was a really simplistic approach, uh, Alex, in terms of what you do, but it's a lot more complex than that. I mean, I think you need to break this down for our audience so that they understand that this is not a competitor to Airbnb, which is a model now that everybody understands. But, you know, you're in a very specific niche with a very specific uh, customer base and a very specific use of, of insurance and all of this. So maybe maybe give us some insight into that. 
Yeah. So what we can do first is just like uh, uh, starting with the story. So how the company start and um, uh, we'll understand like really the problematic and how the, the, the company is really working. So the, the company start when I started this company, it was like, uh, I, I don't want to be an entrepreneur uh, at this point. Or I just don't know that I will be an entrepreneur. Um, so at this point, uh, I'm just with uh, one of my friends and we are talking uh, like, uh, what's up, what's going on and all those things. And she just tell me like, hey, my mother uh, uh, have been a disaster victim, right? So at this moment, uh, uh, I was like, okay, it's a like it's it's happened sometimes but she explained to me that she lived at the hotel since two months okay so you can't imagine yourself like living at the hotel and be like uh, sitting on your bed uh for two months and just finishing working and like it's it's really boring and she she really really ate that so at this moment i'm just like it's so it's it's so weird that insurance company first pay for the hotel you can imagine how it's cost and uh I was like, I know someone who have a fully furnished housing really close from the disaster point. And I'm like, okay, uh, uh, I, I can just tell like the, the, this disaster victim, like I know someone who have a house uh, really close from your place uh, and uh, you will be much more better there than at the hotel. So if you want, I can just connect you with this this guy, you know, this, this homeowner. So I just connect. Uh, those people at the beginning and uh, like the disaster victim was super, super happy with that. Like they, she was like, Oh my God, I have a house with my kitchen close from my uh, uh, life. And um, the homeowner was super happy too, because he made uh, as much as money as Airbnb, but for four months in a row. And um, uh, so I, I just connect those two people and do the bridge. And I'm like, it's probably not the the only person in um, in the. Uh, it, it's probably not the only homeowner who wants to rent his house to a disaster victim, and the 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 mother of my friend is probably not the only disaster who needs a house and uh, not be able to find some find some house. So I was like, okay, but uh, I will just like. Try to make a little website, nothing, uh, nothing really fashion, and uh, create this uh, this uh, the little website. Who uh, homeowner can just like uh, publish their their house and uh, rent it to a disaster victim. So this is how the idea start, and is not really starting as a business, but more as a, a small side project for helping people in my community. So it wasn't yet to you know at this point. No, so I was gonna say you, you yeah. look at you look at this, and 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 it, it was born out of necessity, which obviously many entrepreneurial projects are. Yeah. But I don't even think it was born as a technology play, right? I mean, this was no. more of just a pure service offering that you were you were thinking of. Yeah, exactly. So at, at the beginning, it was really just like everything was was handmade. Okay, so handcraft all the the process of the company. So when we when, when I start, I just do everything by uh, with, with my hand so uploading picture on the website uh, offering it uh, talking to the phone with the entrance company and all those things and during my because I, I was student at this point um, 
I, I just make it for 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 uh, for for living, you know, because I start uh, really fast to. Uh, um, I, I just quit my job for for this because it, it was a lucrative one, and it was not cost a lot, right? It's just a transaction, like you just need to to talk to people. Um, so yeah, so uh, uh, we just finish. Uh, not we just finish, but we just uh, um, create this this little website. And after this creation, um, we were uh, a lot of uh, 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 we have a lot of chance on every aspect of the company. And one of the big chance that we have, and it's a bad chance, a bad luck for people, but it's a good chance for us. It wasn't get snow in the uh, 2017. There was like flood, tornado, like all in the same time, and we we uh, became really fast, like. Uh, a super useful company for the community. So um, this really, uh, this really uh, started the company. Um, how do you, how did you, how did you bring the insurance companies in? I mean, obviously, they, they, I would think they're probably one of the biggest winners in this exercise, excluding the fact that the hotel probably ends up losing. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. You, you've brought in an insurance company into an exercise which can be a very rigid, very structured environment, and you've had to take this now and take a let's see a kind of the fly fly by the seat of your pants startup, <laughs> you know, in that exercise and now bring in a very large factor, which is, which is the compensation component, which is the insurance companies. How did you go about bringing them in and, 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 and getting their winning their and comfort? The, the, yeah. And this, this is a, this is a fun fact and a uh, uh, really good question. So at the beginning, I only have one claim adjuster who worked with Sinistar. So only one. And, um, I make a lot of mistakes between all those things. And one of my mistakes, it was to just rent a house. Okay. So I just rent it completely for a full year. And, you know, after four months, you have nobody in your house and you only have one claim register. So you start to losing money, but a lot, a lot of money. And remember that I'm, I'm like 21, 21 years old at this, at this moment. I don't have a lot of money. I, I just have like a, a, a student debt <laughs> I can use for like managing all those things. And uh, I was in a problem situation, okay? Because I just don't have clients. So at this moment, I was like, okay, there is two solutions there. I will never rent the house again for a full year. I will just rent it for the period of the, the disaster. And second, I need to talk to my claim register and say like, hey, who your coworkers? <laughs> so, and he was he was really really cool with me and just say, hey, you know, uh, I, I I love your company, so uh, I will send you all the the um, the coworking uh, my my, my coworker. Uh, so he sent me email and I just rebuild a bit the system of the company for a look like really really pro. Okay, we're like we will look like a really big company, and I just sent an email like. Hey, what's up? I, 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 uh, we have a new company. We operate in Gatineau, and the uh, uh, next thing you know, they, the, 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 the phone start ringing, and we are, uh, we, we, we were uh, in a couple of months the, the biggest company for relocalization in Gatineau. So that was a, that was a nice thing. Mike, it's a great example of an entrepreneur who's committed to the model that he's sort of adjusting the way his business operates, kind of like an Airbnb type of situation, but for those who have been victims of a disaster at home, like a fire or a flood. However, they go the extra mile and set homeowners up with insurance companies and make sure that uh, 
the uh, the victims are all taken care of. So, Alexi, this is a really interesting idea. And I'm wondering, with all the uh, travel apps that are out there, Airbnb, Booking.com, um, all kinds of house sharing apps, how come no one's made this this bridge and this this sort of uh, this tech bridge to the disaster area before? Yeah, um, I, I think it's a it's a really good question. So, um, first of all, um, I think Airbnb is really really focused on tourists. Okay, and it's a really uh, different situation when you are a disaster victim. Um, so, why they don't do it, I don't really know why they 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 they, they don't do it. Um, but I think there is uh, a, a lot of uh, people who, who who is a disaster victim who will use Airbnb to be relocated. Okay, um, the big difference between Airbnb and Sinistar, uh, and especially uh, it's the transaction. So if you're uh, Airbnb clients, you need to have a credit card, you know, and you need to rent a house and use your credit card to rent it. So one of the big difference is that. When you, you work with Sinistar, you don't need your credit card. It's the entrance company you will pay directly Sinistar. So at this point, um, uh, you, you can imagine that if you're a, a, a disaster victim, you have a, a super uh, big financial stress on your your uh, your uh, finance, and you don't have like three thousand dollar per month to pay with your credit cards uh, to wait for your entrance company to send you the check. They send the check at uh, a different address, so it's going to be loose and all those stuff. So uh, when the, the disaster victim pa- passed by Sinistar, he use uh, uh, he just have to sign and he can uh, literally enter in the, the house without any payments. And the second big things uh, with Airbnb and all those tourist uh, uh, application, uh, it's it's not taking consideration the prolongation. So um, wh- uh, when you um, when you rebuild your house, uh, you have uh, uh, normally you have some delay between like uh, when when your house is ready and when it's supposed to be ready. So that, that, uh, that yeah. doesn't happen in reconstruction and building. Never that never happens. No, it's always right on time. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah. So so this is one of the big difference. So all the tech system will take it in charge uh, and uh, communicate with all those parts to uh, make sure that everything is is a. Uh, uh, under under control alex it, it, it's very interesting because i think you you're you're leading into the next question where i wanted to go you've gone from kind of a quaint uh marketplace of trying to help people who are in need to a more formalized you know website driven uh online business to now what is very tech laden and uh fintechish and, and it's a completely different model from when you started you know give us a little bit of that you know progression from the technology use and and what's involved yeah so between uh, uh, during two years we just like do everything manually so we handcraft all the process and really understand the market and I think it's a mistake uh, when you you start a business and you think you understand the market and you think you understand your clients but you don't really understand them and you start to build a company with 10 million of investment and you start to build a tech really fast and you go and you, you probably don't really understand your your, your client. So during two years, uh, we just try to understand and step by step, like what's going on when you're a disaster victim, what's going on with the entrance company, what they really want, because they are, it's like a big boat of uh, 400,000 uh, 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 employee. So during two years, we do that. 
and we switch it. And at the moment, we have so much volume that we were, hey, this is a, a, a big problem. And we were like really some, some, some tasks that we really, really, really ate was at this moment the, um, the driving parts of the technology. So we just like, okay, I really hate to upload picture on the 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 on, on cinestar.ca so we'll automate that and we finally just automate all those transactions all those details to now uh, just have one uh, button to click and we can re relocate it like a, um, a hundred people at the same times so uh, that was it so we, we just like literally the 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 roadmap of the the tech was what we ate the most to do it's like what, what is super boring like facturation uh, legal documentation all those things so uh, uh, and now we are a completely uh, full tech company who just uh, clo close contract really uh, easily but the the roadmap was uh, built like during two years with and crafted the company so i mean we all know that you to move into that space is not pocket you know obviously the evolution the, going from a, you know, I'm going to set up my godaddy.com website to the point of where I'm sitting in this, you know, fintech type of environment. I mean, there you need money. So at the beginning, like you said, you started out small scale and you built it and you developed it. As you continue to move forward, you've needed cash. Now, you know, unless, unless you hit the lotto, I guess somewhere in that exercise, you need to go to market to find financing. Where, you know, have you, have you started to look at financing options? Have you had any angel financing yet? And then, yeah. Okay, so go ahead. Of course, one day you you, you need money just for scaling. Um, but what what was really interesting is that we make a, a, a lot of money during those two years, and we were able to like finance a, a, a big part of the technology. And what is really really cool in the entrance industry is that it's a slow industry. Okay, so some entrepreneur needs to be like super, super quick. They launch something in a really fast industry, but entrance company have like a lot of barrier, like when you want to enter in this in this industry. So it's give uh, us more time to build a company and spend much less money than we were supposed to be if you want to go really fast. So that that was a, a really important point. So what we start to raise with angel investor uh, and we really choose angel investor for the money yes but a lot for uh, who we are and uh, how uh, uh, they can help us to to uh, um, go more into the entrance company and entrance world who is a, a world of uh, a lot of people who just like a uh, you, you know if you know these people you can you can grow really fast in this in this industry so um yeah so we 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 use that and now we just uh, uh enter like in probably a year in a series a okay uh that will uh, launch us more in like uh, ontario and the uh, east of the united states um and what is really cool right now is we are really close to just like uh not like the the, the product is finished so we just uh, we can just um raise for a scale up just the, the company. So it's interesting because the Canadian landscape of insurance is a highly regulated, uh, like you said, kind of a latent 
industry that takes time. The U.S. insurance industry, however, as you're, that you're that you're going into, has a very different. It's a very fractured approach to dealing with things. Have you had to make any kind of major changes in either your programming or your business model in order to move into a U.S. market? Probably yes, and probably in Canada too in a, in a, in a couple of years. But when we enter, we enter really slowly. Okay, so we don't enter like a, 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 we 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 target really small town, really close from big towns like Albany, really close from New York, and Kitchener, really close from Toronto. So just really testing the market and know like a, a, to, we change culture, we change languages. So it, for us, it's like a, a, just a, a testing point. And at this moment, uh, we will know like if the for, for sure the legal things change. But it's not changed so much. Like it's really just like uh, 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 the tech will will be the same. That that's for sure. Okay, Alexi, you're gonna stick around. We're gonna have your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur in a moment, if you don't mind. But first, let's talk to Julie Cote, manager, real estate and tax at FL Fuller Landau, on the new federal tax changes coming to vacant properties. Welcome back, Julie. Thank you for having me. And Micah, this is very interesting for real estate. So this this measure is meant to calm down cool, uh, hot real estate markets like Montreal and tax properties that are sitting empty. Um, when is this coming to effect? Well, first, let me say this. The tax bill is not yet in effect. However, since the slim two-liner we got from the, two, the 2021 February budget, they published an exhaustive guideline in the fall asking professionals to weigh in with comments and an update was published later on. So it does look like it will be put in action. Of course, there's various opinions that came to light lately questioning the amount this tax would generate, but so far they're not backtracking. So what's the purpose of the tax, Julie? I mean, we, is this just another tax grab? Is this an attempt to calm the waters of a hot real estate market? Or is this just somebody made a, came, came up with a really good idea to raise more funds? So let me just put it out there. This applies only to non-residents. So, so, so far, we can only speculate, but it seems like the goal of such measures is to cool down the Canadian market on both the resale side and the rental side, making it less interesting to keep vacant properties in Canada solely for investment purposes. Of course, all Canadians' residents are not concerned with this and are not required to take any action. So how does this work? Do the math for us. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. it sounds like real simple. That's one percent on on the property. Is it based on the market value? Is it based on the uh, property tax value? Sure. Um, from the latest publication, we understand that the tax will target any owners who live outside Canada. It will apply on properties that are not rented out or occupied by the owners directly, their spouse or their student children for at least six months of the calendar year. The tax will be calculated on a city roll value and represent 1%. The amount will be payable at the end of the year on a self-assessment basis before April 30th. It is said that the first and last year of ownership would be exempted. So define the self-assessment component here. I mean, that sounds like uh, uh, walking into a, oh, well, I'll pay this if I feel like it. And if I don't, well, eh, nobody will catch me. The thing is, like most things in Canada, tax things, it is always self, I'm going to say inflicted, but that's not the case. It's a, it's a self-person uh, obligation. 
So you have to be aware of the taxes. You have to comply. You have to file within a certain delay or you will get a penalty. In the case of non-residents, they want to put in place a system where upon a resale, this will be brought to light and you will have to pay the amounts plus penalties. So there's always a place where you get the, the catch on to you. So at the end, when I sell it, if I have a vacation property as a non-resident, the day I go to sell it and I haven't declared any of this self-assessed 1%, they will find a way to, to attach it to whatever exactly. the, the transaction is. Okay. Exactly. Uh, they want to tag this. I'm sorry, Mike. They want to tag this on um, lawyers and notaries, notaries that do uh, real estate. So do you know if they are going to put any kind of civil penalties in place for the lawyers and the notaries as they have uh, in other situations? Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, so last question, I guess, really is, you know, what if a, what if a non-resident has a personal vacation home? Uh, they use it for three months of the year. They come up for the summer or they do whatever, and then they decide to rent it out or decide not to rent it. Uh, are they going to be uh, subject to this tax? The updated guideline touched the vacation property sector, such as Mont-Tremblant, Whistler, etc. These might be exempted as well if they are used for personal vacation. We assume supporting document will be required with these filings. I just wanna bring up one other point. Um, we're not sure yet, but it seems like citizens and permanent residents living outside Canada will be required to file annually to get their exemption and failure to file in any cases could incur a $10,000 penalty per year. That's so the Canadians living elsewhere will not have to pay the 1%, but they may be subject to penalties for non-filing for the Egg. exemption. Exactly. At this time, nothing is more unsure. I guess we will see in 2023. Mike, this is an interesting measure. I'm curious. And thank you very much, Julie, by the way. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you think it's going to work because in other cities they've tried this, Mike, and it seems like the impression is that it's not the vacant properties that's doing the damage to the housing market. It's the lack of housing stock. Yeah, it's a lack of housing stock, and, and, and it is those ultimately at the end of the day that have purchased these homes, you know, for you know multitude of reasons, whether they're renting them out or whatever the case is. And, and it's a lot of foreign money uh, that, that has been the concern, right? So which is why they put this in place. I sense that there is a lot of uh, tweaking to do in the rules and the execution uh, going forward. My understanding is this will be on top of the Vancouver, BC, and Toronto tax, which vary from 0.5% to 5%. Uh, and for having done some of these files, they don't go as wide in the exemptions. So it's either it's rented and you, you file a document or a form every year, or you're paying the tax. Mm. In this case, they're going beyond that, and it's Canada-wide. And they're trying to target really people, probably mostly in big cities that are sitting on empty properties. Montreal has uh, discussed this. Uh, Quebec has discussed this for the Montreal region as well. Uh, I don't believe it's been put in place yet, but I don't think they've no. also nixed the idea long term. So I guess uh, we'll see what happens going forward. Thanks, Julie. You're welcome. And as usual, at the end of our show, we turn to our entrepreneur, Alexis Vertefeuille, CEO of the After Disaster Accommodation Network, Cinestar, and ask him for his one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur, Alexis. So my, my, uh, my advice is uh, how to receive an advice. So th this, is a, uh, this is a way that I really, uh, I, I really think it's a, a good way to do because a lot of people, especially in this world, 
will tell you advice like what's going on there, where you are going, uh, and and uh, how to raise money, how to to create a company. And uh, I think what is the most important in this part is to focus on people uh, you would like to be or who do things. And when you start, you are surrounded with all a lot of people who never do that. Like in my family, it was that. So, um, and they give you advice uh, and it's not a good advice. So if you want a good advice, you can literally uh, search about like people you, you will, you will like to be. And I will give you an example. When I, when I, when I just start, I was like, okay, I want to be this company. So how this company is built. So I just go to the Quebec registration of the company and say like, okay, did I need to incorporate? Did I need to? And I just look at all those things and I realized that, okay, there was like thousands of incorporation in this company. So I need to do that or just start with an incorporation. And I, as an example, I just go like call a lawyer and say like, hey, what's up? Uh, Want to start a company? You say, oh, okay. Uh, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, fee when you you start a corporation and um i was like okay and did did you propose that and he, he, he say no and i was like okay you're not the guy i want to talk to yeah so basically just to, to recap alexi your advice is to seek out good advice and that's 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 a part of your success yeah and don't don't uh, don't 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 talk to people who who's uh, who not do what you do like, or, or don't take too, too seriously those advice. Excellent advice. Alexi Vertfeu, CEO of Sinistar. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. And don't forget, you can head over to todaysentrepreneur.org for hundreds of local entrepreneur stories going back to 2009. Mike, next week, the great Orla Johannes sits in with me. She'll be offering her fashion insights as you'll be chatting with Melissa Lambert, founder of Lambert Design. They do cruelty-free vegan leather bags. Uh, enjoy that show. See you soon. Thanks, Dan. Stay safe. This has been a production of TNKR Media. Good talk.